Uh, we are continuing our study of our statement of faith, and we're on the subject of Scripture. Uh, maybe if you want to, that'd be fine. Um, and over the last couple of weeks, if you've been with us, we've been covering the first half of the statement. I just want to read through it. Uh, to recap, it says, We believe the Word of God is found in the 66 books from Genesis to Revelation, is God's divinely inspired revelation of Himself to mankind, and is to be treasured and obeyed. The Holy Spirit superintended human authors in various ways, such that through their individual personalities, vocabularies, and writing styles, they recorded God's Word to man without error. That's what we covered the last couple of weeks, canonicity first, uh, basically how we, how we know that we have the right books in our Bible. And then last week we talked about inspiration, which is how uh, God gave us his words. How, how is it that these, is, uh, these books were written by human beings and yet are also uh, the words of God? Today we're going to dive into the rest of the statement, which says, All Scripture is complete. Without any mixture of error for its matter, and entirely true and trustworthy, it reveals God's judgments by which we will all be tried, and it testifies of Jesus and his work of redemption. Therefore, Scripture is and shall remain to the end of the world our final authority in all faith, practice, and conduct, and it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. That's what we're going to try. We're going to try to cover all of that uh, today. Starting with the first sentence there, all Scripture is complete without any mixture of error for its matter and entirely true and trustworthy. That is a summary of the doctrine of inerrancy. Um, back in, I believe it was 1978, uh, this was a major controversy in America that really split most of the mainline denominations. Um, some believed that the Bible basically contained errors and others didn't. And so the inerrantists wrote a statement known as the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy um, you can Google it. It's a very well-known statement that uh, defined what true evangelicals believe by biblical inerrancy. Um, and so most of the denominations, like I said, split over that issue because it, it really was the hot-button issue. Does the Bible contain errors or is it uh, entirely true? So today we're going to uh, cover the doctrine of inspiration, and I'll just summarize by saying uh, basically it means that when God gave us his words, no errors were included. Every, every word of God is inspired uh, sorry, every word God inspired is true and should be obeyed. Uh, many texts state this in Scripture. We're going to look first of all at uh, Psalm 119, 160, which says, Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. So there you see the word of God is true, and the word of God will always be true. Uh, when we read Scripture, we should receive it as entirely true and accurate. I want to read now a, a statement of Jesus in his high priestly prayer in John 17 um, that says, Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. Truth. And notice there, Jesus uses the word aletheia, truth. It's the noun form, not the adjectival, meaning he doesn't say your word is true. He said your word is truth. Uh, he is saying that the word of God itself is the standard of truth. And we should think of the Bible as the reference point by which we measure every other claim to truthfulness. Uh, if a statement disagrees with Scripture, it is by definition untrue. As we saw last week, God used uh, men to write his word, but he guided that process uh, in such a way that the human authors did not make any mistakes. And as we'll see, the doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture is based upon uh, this understanding of inspiration. Inspiration is the foundation uh, for inerrancy. Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2 in Malachi, if you could advance that back there as we go. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 2 says, For this cause also, 
Thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God, which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. And so Paul commends the Thessalonian Christians because when they preached to them uh, the word of God, they received it as it truly is, meaning uh, this isn't just Paul speaking. We know this is God's words. These are not merely men's words. They understood that the word of God was truly God's words. It was him talking. And so we, we too need to have the same mindset when we approach Scripture. Every time you open the Bible, you are hearing the voice of God. These are his words. And it's because of that fact that we can trust that our, our Bible is inerrant. Uh, let me show you what I mean. First of all, Titus chapter 1, verse 2, we're going to look at two texts that essentially say the same thing. Uh, Titus 1, verse 2 says, In hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. And then uh, Hebrews 6 says it even stronger, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. So God cannot lie. It violates his nature uh, to lie. There are very few things we can say God cannot do, but one of them is to lie, to speak without it being truth. A part of what it means to be God is to speak truth. Therefore, if God were to lie, he would cease to exist as God. Now, this is important because it is only because of the character of God that we can believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. Because God is incapable of lying, we can trust that his words are always true. So you can see that this doctrine is built on two premises. Number one, God can't lie. And number two, God gave us these words, which is where the doctrine of inspiration comes in. And it's because of those two foundational premises that we can say uh, the Bible is inerrant. I wrote this statement down. If the Bible is the word of God and God cannot lie, then the Bible cannot contain anything false or inaccurate. hope you can follow that reasoning. It's pretty simple. Uh, that if we truly believe that these words were given to us by God, and it's against his nature to speak anything but truth, uh, then, it, then it follows that the scriptures are inerrant. And so that's our, our doctrine of inerrancy. I know we covered that briefly, uh, but I want us to just to see that it is built upon the doctrine of inspiration. You really can't believe in inspiration uh, and deny inerrancy. I don't know how you would do that. If you believe that Scripture came to us from God, how can it be anything but inerrant? Uh, before we move on, we're going to look at some of the other parts. Is there any questions on inerrancy? Okay. Uh, we're going to look now at the next part of the statement, which uh, gives us kind of the summary of what this book that we call the Bible is all about. Notice that the statement says, It testifies of Jesus and his work of redemption. Now, certainly there's much more than that in the Bible, obviously, but this is the main storyline of Scripture, uh, that God created our world, man, man, mankind fell into sin, and God sent Jesus to rescue us from our sin and to restore uh, the original state of creation. That's the main storyline of Scripture. It's often summarized by these four words, uh, creation, fall, redemption, consummation, uh, which just means God created us, we fell into sin, uh, Jesus redeemed us back or saved us, and he will one day restore uh, the Eden ideal, where we're in perfect fellowship with God as, as it was originally intended. In other words, the Bible is all about salvation, and obviously the main character of these 66 books is Jesus. The Old Testament points forward to Christ, and the New Testament points back to Christ. He is at the center of everything that Scripture says. Jesus himself said this in Luke chapter 24, uh, where he says to his disciples, these are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. 
Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures, and said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And so we saw a couple of weeks ago when Jesus uses that uh, classification of law, prophets, and writings, he's referring to the entire Old Testament. He says, the scriptures uh, were written concerning me, and it's all pointing towards my death and my resurrection. So uh, he, he is saying basically that the scriptures are all about him and about what he's come to do. Which means if you read the Old Testament and you don't see Jesus, you've not understood the Old Testament properly. You've missed the entire point. And this is, of course, what the Jews did. Jesus said to the Jew Jewish leaders of his day in John 5, Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. So these are religious Jews who had spent their lives uh, memorizing and learning scriptures, and yet they had missed the entire point. They could not see that Jesus was coming uh, as the fulfillment of everything the prophets had said. Every unblemished lamb that was sacrificed in the Old Testament was a picture of the sinless Lamb of God who would come and take away the sins of the world, who would die as a sacrifice. Uh, the bronze serpent that was lifted up on the pole that brought healing to the snake-bitten Israelites was a picture of Jesus being lifted up on a cross to bring healing to those who had been poisoned by sin. Uh, Jesus was the fulfillment of the prophecy of God in Genesis 3 that one would come and crush the serpent's head. Jesus was the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 53 that one would come and die and by his wounds we would be healed. Uh, all of the Old Testament was pointing towards Christ and specifically to his death and resurrection. And as Jesus says, if you search the scriptures, and there he's talking not about the New Testament, but, but about the Old Testament. The New Testament hadn't been written yet. Uh, he says, if you search through the Old Testament, you will find it is testifying of me. It's talking about me. Uh, the New Testament, of course, is more clearly about Jesus. I mean, if you read the New Testament, his name is on basically every page of it. Uh, it's all about Jesus. But if you understand the Bible, you'll begin to see more and more that the whole Bible is telling the story of Jesus. We're going to watch another uh, Bible Project video now, which I think may be one of their best, that explains uh, the storyline of Scripture and kind of how it all points to Christ. So we'll watch this. The Bible is an important book, but it's really long. Yeah, it's a collection of many books written over a long period of time, but altogether they tell one unified story. So what's the story of the Bible? Well, it begins by introducing us to a beautiful mind, the author of all reality, a being called God. And he has the power to take the dark chaos of the uncreated world and bring about order and beauty and a garden full of life. And to crown this accomplishment, God appoints these creatures called humanity. Or in Hebrew, Adam. And they're made as God's image. Which means that they're commissioned to rule this beautiful world on God's behalf by harnessing all of its potential and creating even more beauty and order. This is a story about humans using their power to do meaningful, life-giving work. But the question is, how? Yeah, humanity now faces a choice that's represented by a fruit tree. So humans could partner with God and find freedom by trusting in his knowledge of good and evil. Or they could seize power and define good and evil on their own, which, God warns, will kill them. And they hear the voice of a dark, mysterious creature that tells them the choice is simple. Take the fruit. It'll give you power and freedom to rule the world on your own terms. And so they seize this knowledge, and as a result, they become suspicious and self-protective. It leads to fractured relationships, violent power grabs, and ultimately, a whole civilization, Babylon, that has redefined evil as good. 
And so, God scatters this corrupted human project. And here the story of the Bible takes an important turn. We zoom in to the story of a man and a woman who come out of Babylon, Abraham and Sarah. Yeah, God promises that from them will come a new people, a nation that has another chance to make the right choice. And if they succeed, it will open up this new way forward for the rest of humanity. And this is why the rest of the Bible story is about this family. And it does not go well. Despite God's personal guidance, Abraham's family gives in to that same temptation to redefine good and evil on their own terms apart from God. Even when their best people were in charge, rulers who loved God's guidance and had divine wisdom, even they gave in. And so Israel was warned by their own prophets that these choices would lead them back to Babylon, this time as conquered captives living in exile, and that's exactly what happened. So even with God's personal guidance, Israel fails. Who can succeed? Well, the prophet said that the story wasn't over. God's going to send a new leader to Israel to cover for their failures and to transform the people's hearts and minds so that they can make the right choice. And so the part of the Bible called the Old Testament ends and these promises are left hanging. And then the biblical story continues into the New Testament. We're introduced to a man who comes from the line of Israel's kings, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said that he was bringing all these promises to their completion. He confronted that dark, mysterious evil that all humanity has given into and resisted its power. And then he announced that God had arrived to rule the world through himself. Jesus taught about God's definition of good and evil, and he said that real power is serving others. According to Jesus, it's people who love the poor and even love their enemies. These are the kinds of people who actually rule the world. And that's confusing, but also really beautiful. And so is the claim that the story goes on to make about Jesus, that he is God become human, to be for Israel and for all humanity what we could never be for ourselves. He came to take the consequences of our evil into himself, and his sacrificial love proved more powerful than evil, than even death itself. So now humanity's presented with a new choice. Represented by a new tree. Stick with the old way of being human, or venture into this new way. And in the story, those who choose the way of Jesus find themselves energized by God's own power. People who know that they are loved and forgiven by God can become people who love and forgive others in return. The Jesus movement quickly spread throughout the world, forming these new communities of people who follow the way of Jesus. But they faced problems. There was persecution from the outside by people in power, and inside there was confusion, even compromise. Yeah, because following Jesus is really hard. And so the movement's leaders called apostles. They wrote letters to comfort and to challenge these communities to stay faithful to the difficult way of Jesus. And they're called to hope for the day when Jesus will come and change everything. And so the Bible ends by pointing to the future day when all wrongs are made right, when evil is eradicated, heaven and earth are united, and humanity can rule the world together in the love and power of God. All right, Let's see where we're at here. Uh, any questions on anything we've covered so far? I think it's clear, the more you read the Bible, the more you'll begin to realize how much of it is pointing to Christ. I know the first time you read Leviticus, you think it's just a bunch of random rules. Um, but then as you, for instance, as you read Hebrews, suddenly you see, oh, this is all talking about Jesus. Um, and so the more of that happens, the more you read Scripture, that you'll see that, that he really is the theme of it all.
Now we're going to move on to some practical implications of what we looked at thus far, which is the Bible was given, we saw last week, by God. That's the doctrine of inspiration. And it is thus completely true and free from error, which is the doctrine of inerrancy. And because it is the very words of God, we should obey them as we would God himself. And so we're going to move to the last sentence now of the statement, which says, Therefore, Scripture is and shall remain to the end of the world our final authority in all faith, practice, and conduct. Uh, therefore is the operative word there, meaning because of everything that's been said of Scripture, because it was given by God, not made up by people, uh, because it is completely true and trustworthy, it's, it's the, the trustworthy record of all that God wanted us to have, and because it contains the judgments of God by which we will be tried. Because of all of this, the Bible is our final authority in everything. Which is just another way, really, of saying God is our final authority. Uh, if we believe that the Bible is God's words, then to disobey Scripture is to disobey God. Um, it is our authority, notice, in faith, what we believe, practice, which is what we do, and conduct, the manner in which we do what we do. Um, everything we do and everything we believe should flow out of a commitment to Scripture. Now, this commitment of Scripture, like I said uh, a couple of weeks ago, really sets the stage for the rest of our statement of faith. Uh, when we talk in a couple of weeks about what we believe about God, we will base all of it on what the Bible says about God. When we talk about what we believe about sin, it will just be looking at what does the Bible say about sin. When we talk about the church, we'll be looking at what Scripture says about church. We, in other words, we get all of our beliefs from the Bible. And that's why uh, underneath every section of the Statement of Faith, you may notice this, there's multiple Scripture references under each paragraph. Uh, that is to show that we didn't just kind of come up with this. We didn't, as a church take some votes and decide what would be in our statement. This is all based upon uh, what Scripture says about these subjects. And the clearer the Bible is on a matter, the more firmly we should believe it. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So we should get our beliefs and our doctrines from the Bible. Uh, also, the Bible is not only to be our authority in faith, uh, but also in practice and conduct. By the way, before I move on to that, I want to say this is one of the things that differentiates evangelicalism from other quote-unquote Christian sects. Uh, one of the things that's different about a Baptist church from a Catholic church, for instance, is we get our beliefs from Scripture, and that's it. Um, the Catholics believe the Bible, but they also believe tradition. They also believe what the Pope says sometimes. They also <laughs> This Pope's a little different. Uh, but they also believe, you know, uh, church councils and the other, they have multiple authorities, in other words. Um, whereas we believe Scripture and Scripture alone. That was one of the, the foundational principles of the Reformation, uh, sola scriptura, which just means the Bible alone. That, that's our authority and, that, and that's it. Um, we don't look to the church or to any man as, uh, as an a, um, authoritative interpreter of Scripture. Uh, that's another issue that we would have with some other religions, is that they say, well, we believe the Bible is our is our authority, but it's only rightly interpreted by the church or by you know Joseph Smith or whoever, um, and we reject that. We we consider Scripture to be our authority in everything. Uh, so not only is is the Bible to be our authority in faith, but also in practice and conduct. In other words, to be a Christian is to submit your life to the authority of God's word. If God commands it in Scripture, we are to obey it. If God forbids something, we are to abstain from it. The Bible is to be our ultimate authority because it is the words of God himself, and we will be judged one day based on how we obeyed God's words. Psalm 119, 105 says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet 
and a light unto our path. Uh, now, if the Bible is to be our final authority in all matters of faith uh, and practice, we better learn what it says. Uh, the Bible isn't going to be the source of your beliefs if you don't know what it teaches. What you believe about creation is not going to be based upon what Scripture says unless you have studied what the Bible says about creation. Uh, what you believe about heaven and hell is not going to be truly based on Scripture unless you've studied what Scripture says on the subject. And so, in order for the Bible to truly be your personal source of doctrine, you must know what it says. And the same thing applies to practice and conduct. Uh, the Bible is not your final authority in day-to-day -day living unless you first know what it says and then follow that. Uh, but it starts with knowing Scripture. Uh, you, you cannot live in accordance with a book that you've not read or heard. The Bible, I wrote this statement as well, the Bible can only direct your life and inform your faith to the extent that you know what it teaches. I think it's kind of an obvious statement, but it's one that we don't necessarily think about. We think that we're basing everything on Scripture, uh, but that's really not possible unless you have read and studied Scripture. If the Bible is the Word of God, it should be our final authority. And if it is to be our authority, we better learn what it says. And that's what the last half of the statement is about where it says, therefore, Scripture is and shall remain to the end of the world, our final authority in all, all faith, practice, and conduct, and it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. And that's all coming from 2 Timothy 3.16. Uh, we've read several times at this point. We'll read it in a minute again. Uh, doctrine is our beliefs. So the Bible is profitable for teaching us what to believe. Reproof means rebuke. So the Bible convicts us of sin. It shows us uh, what sin is, what's right, what's wrong. Uh, the Bible also corrects us. It moves us from where we are to where we ought to be, and it instructs us in righteousness. It teaches us how we are to live in this world. And so the Bible is to be our ultimate authority in those uh, areas. Second Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect or complete, truly furnished unto all good works. So this leads into the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. Uh, and again, this is what I was saying earlier about the Bible being our only, our sole authority. Uh, I'm not your authority. The Bible is our authority. Uh, that is premised upon the doctrine of the uh, uh, sufficiency of Scripture. That in the Bible, in the pages of the Bible, basically is everything that God wanted us to know. Uh, we're not looking for some vision that God's going to give us some new, you know, whatever. No. Uh, what God wanted us to know is contained in his word. And so the Bible is profitable for all that we need uh, to live godly in this life. That's what verse 17 says. Uh, what we need to know in order to be complete and equipped to live the life God wants us to live, we have it in this book. Therefore, learn this book. Uh, this view of Scripture as being inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient should lead to us spending time learning what it says. And we do this in two ways, individually and corporately. Uh, you as a Christian have a responsibility to learn the Bible on your own, and I have a responsibility to teach you even more of the Bible as we gather as a church. Um, we're going to look now at, at Psalm 1. If you have a Bible, can you turn there really quick? Psalm chapter 1, uh, right near the middle of your Bible. If you just kind of let it fall open, it'll be somewhere in Psalms normally. Psalm chapter 1. We're going to read these uh, six verses. And then I think, uh, I don't know if we'll have time. We might have time to watch one more video uh, after this. Psalm 1. This is uh, the portrait of the ideal Bible reader. 
This kind of tells you what it's like to live a life that is based upon Scripture. So Psalm 1, starting in verse 1, and you'll see a contrast as we go between the person who lives according to God's law and the person who uh, lives according to the world. Psalm 1, verse 1 says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Uh, the blessed man is the one who doesn't follow the counsel of the ungodly, but instead he gets his direction for his life from the Bible, from the law of God. He delights in the word of God. He meditates on it day and night. Uh, the Bible is at the center of his life so that his life is truly prosperous, not speaking there of financial gain or something, but a truly rich life uh, is only found when you live according to Scripture. The ungodly man is the one who rejects God's words and will be judged for so doing. Uh, and so if you want to be the blessed man, delight in the Bible. Uh, meditate on it day and night. And obviously that can't happen unless you're taking in Scripture. So read the Bible, read it over and over throughout your life. And Psalm 1 is a picture of what that life looks like. I'm going to watch one more video before we wrap up. So the Bible is a collection of books written in different literary styles like narrative, poetry, and prose. And most of us are familiar with these kinds of literature. Yeah, we all know a narrative when we see one, like The Hunger Games or The Great Gatsby. And most people can recognize poetry, whether it's Walt Whitman or the songs of Bob Dylan. And every day we're surrounded by prose and news articles or essays. Now all of these examples are modern American literature in that they came from this time period and this region of the world. But there's also medieval English literature from from another place in time, or ancient Greek writings from this place in time. So each time period and culture produces its own unique kind of literature. And in order to read the Bible well, we need to keep in mind that it comes from this part of the world and was produced in this basic period of time. So what's unique about ancient Jewish literature? Well, a key feature is that it lacks a lot of the details that modern readers have come to expect in stories and poems. And this makes it seem really simple. But actually, it's very sophisticated literature. Every detail that is given matters. And that's great, but the lack of detail means that stories are often loaded with ambiguities. I mean, take one of the first stories, Adam and Eve in the Garden. Where did this talking snake come from? And why did God allow him there? Why didn't Adam and Eve die on the spot like God said they would? And who's this offspring of the woman who will destroy the snake but is bitten by it? Yeah, so many puzzles in this story. And some of these are questions that we have and that are not important to what the author is focusing on. But some of these ambiguities are in Intentional. Intentional? Won't that lead to bad interpretations, people filling in the gaps with their own answers? Well, that's a risk the biblical authors took in writing this way. We all tend to impose our own cultural assumptions onto the Bible, but they apparently thought the risk was worth it. These oddities are really invitations into an adventure of reading and discovery. What do you mean? Well, for example, the strange promise about the offspring of the woman crushing and being bitten by the snake. That word offspring is 
as a clue to pay attention to genealogies, which, lo and behold, run all through the biblical narrative. They trace the lineage from Eve all the way to King David and his offspring. And in the New Testament, Jesus is connected to the offspring of this royal line. Now, when you read the prophets, Isaiah connected this king to the suffering servant who would die on behalf of his people. And then in the book of Revelation, there's this symbolic vision. And can you guess? It's about a woman and her offspring. It's Jesus and his followers who conquer the dragon by giving up their lives. Yeah, so each part of the story there is loaded with ambiguities, but altogether it makes sense. And this is the literary genius of the Bible. It forces you to keep reading and then interpret each part in light of the others. This is feeling complicated. I don't know if I can do all that. Well, you're actually not expected to notice all of this by yourself or all at once. This dense way of writing forces you to slow down and then read carefully, embarking on this interactive discovery process through the whole biblical narrative over a lifetime of reading and rereading. Ah, okay, meditation literature. Yeah, in Psalm 1, we read about the ideal Bible reader. It's someone who meditates on the scriptures day and night. In Hebrew, the word meditate means literally to mutter or speak quietly. The idea is that every day for the rest of your life, you slowly, quietly read the Bible out loud to yourself and then go talk about it with your friends, pondering the puzzles, making connections, and discovering what it all means. And as you let the Bible interpret itself, something remarkable happens. The Bible starts to read you. Because ultimately, the writers of the Bible want you to adopt this story as your story. All right, so the Bible is to be our final authority in all things and profitable for doctrine, what we believe, the proof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. And because of the preeminence Scripture should have in our lives, I'm arguing we should read the Bible, we should study the Bible, we should meditate on the Bible. Uh, one final application here. Not only should each of us individually read and meditate on Scripture, but the Bible should be at the center uh, of our church life. I preached at you for a few minutes. Now I'm going to preach at me if that's okay. Uh, Paul wrote to Timothy. Timothy was a young pastor, uh, pastoring the church in Ephesus. Uh, the books of First and Second Timothy have come to mean a lot more to me over the last year or so uh, because Timothy was in the same boat as me. He was a young man pastoring a church, and uh, Paul gives him instruction in Second Timothy chapter 4. He says, preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. Uh, this view of Scripture is why I preach in the manner that I do. Uh, each Sunday, I bring a text of the Bible and read it and explain it and apply it. I, don't, I try, at least, not to give you too many of my opinions. Uh, I, I don't stand up and just say we're going to talk about, I don't know, whatever topic, and then I just kind of tell you out of my you know, 20-some years of wisdom when I've come to learn about a subject. No, I try to give you what Scripture says. Uh, because the Bible is our authority in all matters of faith and practice. You should not believe something just because I say to believe it. Uh, you shouldn't practice something just because I say to do it. As your pastor, I have zero authority to tell you anything outside of what Scripture says. And that's why I try my best to teach uh, what the text teaches. I try to show you where I'm getting uh, what I'm saying. I want you to be able to look down in your Bible and see uh, what I'm saying is actually there, that I'm not twisting things. And the reason I preach expository sermons is because of my conviction about the nature of Scripture being in the inerrant words of God, given by inspiration, and that the Bible is sufficient. Uh, you don't need my opinions, you don't need my advice, you need Scripture. If you know the Bible, you have everything you need to be complete and equipped 
to live the life that God wants you to live. In the New Testament, the teaching of the Bible is the main calling of a pastor. Uh, this is the idea seen throughout the New Testament that a, a group of Christians would, ga- would, would gather regularly in a place and appoint one of them, one of those people, to be the teacher. Uh, and, and basically the idea of contributing financially to a church is to support a teacher so that he's freed up, not having to work a secular job, but can give himself more wholly to the study of Scripture. And then, you know, throughout the week, and then on, uh, on Sunday, bring what he's studied basically to the congregation so it's a benefit to all. Uh, that is the primary job of a pastor. Again, Paul writing to the young pastor Timothy in, in 1 Timothy 4 says, Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers, in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. So Timothy was to spend considerable time and energy on reading and studying Scripture and on doctrinal clarity. Verse 14, neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy with laying on uh, of the hands of the presbytery. Meditate upon these things, give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting may appear to all. Uh, Timothy was to give himself to the study of Scripture so that his profiting would appear to all, meaning uh, those under the teaching of the pastor Timothy, he's a young man just starting out in ministry, uh, they are to see him progressing over time. And I hope that that's the same with me. I hope years from now, uh, my preaching is better than it is now. And I hope you see me progressing in my knowledge of Scripture and my ability to communicate the Word of God accurately. I hope you see growth in me over time as I continue to study and learn. My teaching should improve or I'm not giving myself to the task as I should. Uh, verse 16, Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this, thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. And so the instructions to Timothy end with this reminder uh, that what he is doing is important. How we preachers handle the word of God will not only affect us, but also those who hear us. And so as a pastor, we are tasked with the responsibility to study Scripture in a more intense way so that we can teach the church more effectively. Uh, let's see here. If I, I don't know if there's much more I want to say here. Uh, just to recap what we've gone over this far, the Bible is inerrant. Today we've looked at the inerrancy of Scripture, that it is free from error, it is entirely true. Uh, it is authoritative, which of course makes sense. if ins- Both of those are premised on inspiration. If, if, th- if these really are the words of God, uh, then of course there's no error in them. And if these really are the words of God, of course, they should be our final authority. Uh, What else could measure up to uh, what God has said? And then the sufficiency of Scripture, which says uh, that that the Bible contains everything that we need uh, to live godly in this life. And because of those attributes of Scripture, we ought to learn it. We ought to read it, study it, and meditate upon it. Uh, You ought to on your own individually, and we ought to hear each week as a church. Because when we read the pages of Scripture, we are hearing the voice of God himself. I've got a couple of minutes if there's questions on anything that we've covered. Uh, Next week we're going to talk about Bible translations, so save those questions. But anything uh, that we've covered on uh, inerrancy, authority, sufficiency of Scripture, or anything on inspiration that we talked about last week. Catherine. Okay. Is it a circular argument? Good question. Okay. Um, well, there's a few things to say about that. First of all, some arguments are inherently, or at least partly circular. Um, so, for instance, if you talk to a, a skeptical atheist and you ask, why do you trust in logic and reason, 
you know, instead of any sort of religious answer to things, he would say because it seems logical and reasonable to do so. Uh, th there is a circular argument in almost every set of beliefs, but uh, the Bible, I believe, is, first of all, the most well-attested book in history. Um, there are, I could show hundreds of archaeological proofs of things in Scripture, even, even just obscure things. Like for a long time, archaeologists did not believe the Bible was correct about the Hittites. They, nobody had any information about the Hittites. They said they never existed, and then, you know, I think 10, 15 years ago, they found, oh, there were Hittites. Um, over and over and over, those things happen, where archaeological digs prove uh, the veracity of Scripture. Now, that's not the reason we believe Scripture. I'll get to that in a minute, but that does confirm it. Um, science, of course, would be another one. Science is catching up to the Bible all the time. Um, things like, you know, diseased people even washing under running water, things like that were not known in the ancient world, but it's in Scripture. Um, issues, even, even things like, you know, Second Peter, I think, talks about the elements melting with a fervent heat. And for a long time, people said, well, that's not possible. You can't melt an element. And then they discovered nuclear fusion, and you can melt elements. Um, so over and over, the earth being round, I mean, all sorts of things were said in Scripture literally hundreds and thousands of years before uh, science caught up. Um, even things like the Ark of Noah, if you study the dimensions of the Ark, it is the, the ideal uh, ratio, length, width, and height, to withstand waves. Um, and those things were discovered, I think, in the 1960s or something. So, um, you know, science, archaeology, of course, confirm these things, fulfilled prophecy. Many things that were written in Scripture that uh, came true just as historical facts uh, after the fact. So you think of Alexander the Great was prophesied in the book of Daniel hundreds of years before he lived. Uh, in fact, when he came in uh, to the land of Israel, the Jews showed him in the Bible where he was written because it was so clearly talking about him, the first king of uh, Greece who would basically conquer the whole, whole known world in his young age and die in his youth. Scripture says that he died in his 30s. Um, so there's many things like that that you can say fulfilled prophecy, archaeology, science, uh, confirm the validity of Scripture. But I, I would say personally there's also a, a self-attestation to Scriptures where if you just read it, objectively, and you spend a lifetime reading it, uh, it proves itself to be true. Um, the more you read the Bible, the more uh, your reason and logic begin to confirm what Scripture says. I'm not sure how else to say that other than that the Spirit of God really does confirm, I believe, to people uh, that look at Scripture objectively that it is true. Um, and most of the people that claim, you know, the Bible's full of contradictions, errors, whatever, They've been on atheist websites. They haven't read the Bible themselves. Uh, because I do think there's a self-attestation to Scripture. Um, and beyond that, I would, I would say, th there's also just, there's so much about the world that makes sense in light of Scripture. Um, I, I don't know how people have a consistent worldview without the Bible as their foundation. I mean, even things that we see in our world today, you know, all the confusion about gender and sexuality, the Bible makes so much sense in a world that's so confused about these issues. Um, the Bible is just, it, it's a consistent source of truth. And, uh, and, and a lot of things that we consider to be objective, self-evident truths are really based on Scripture, whether we realize it or not. Because um, our, our society has been so informed by Scripture for so long. So, yeah, those are just some thoughts. I, I understand the argument that, yes, it is a bit circular because you're proving the inerrancy of Scripture by Scripture. Uh, you could also approach it by just saying, do you believe Jesus rose from the dead as a historical fact? If you do, 
the most reliable historical accounts of the man Jesus are the Gospels. If you want to get real specific, maybe the Gospel of Mark would be the most considered to be, I'm not talking about Christians, by secular scholars to be the most accurate record of Jesus' life. If that's true, then in Mark, when we see, you know, if you believe that Jesus rose from the dead and therefore is God in flesh, which is what he said, uh, and you look at his statements in the Gospels about what he believed about Scripture, okay, that would be another argument for why we should accept Scripture as an error. Because if this man truly lived, died, and rose again and said, this is what, you know, are, are my words, that's good enough for me. Uh, that's basically the argument in Greg Gilbert's book, uh, Why Trust the Bible. He kind of starts with the resurrection of Christ and then works backwards to his statements about Scripture. So many different ways that you can go about uh, saying that, but I do understand there's a bit of circularity if you just take the simplistic argument. Malachi, did you raise your hand? Or are you stretching? Okay, what's up? Okay, so How would I argue about, uh, okay, how, how would I respond to people that claim the scriptures are not inerrant because of various translations? Okay, okay, so maybe I should clarify that then. Um, when we say the Bible is inerrant, we're talking about the Bible as God gave it, which was in Greek and Hebrew. Um, technically speaking, this is not inerrant. This is a translation made by human beings, and human beings make mistakes. I think it's an overall reliable translation. There's many that I think are even very slightly more reliable. Um, but human beings make mistakes. Sometimes, you know, when you're translating a book this large, uh, you know, you're going to mess up sometimes. Um, and, and in some cases, you know, there's, there's like in the King James preface, for instance, they mentioned that there were uh, names of birds and things that were not known at the time, so they really didn't know how to translate it. Um, so yeah, when we talk about the inerrancy of Scripture, we're talking about in the original documents of Greek and Hebrew, as God gave it to us. Now, we do have many, in the English language, we'll talk about this next week, we are very spoiled uh, with some of the most accurate translations in all of the world. I mean, it, it is ridiculous. Uh, if you take even a less accurate translation, like I'll pick on the NIV, it's not my favorite translation, I know it's popular. Uh, I would say the NIV is, is not one of our most accurate translations in English. It is far better than the rest of the world has. And I don't know of any language that would be an exception to that. Um, so when we talk about, you know, which translation is the most accurate, we are really nitpicking about very small details uh, because we have very good, reliable translations in our language. But uh, as far as inerrancy, no, no translation is perfect. Uh, they're done by human beings, and so, of course, you know, there's, an, there's a, a bit of subjectivity there. But the Bible, as God gave it to us in the original languages, <clears throat> is what we consider to be inerrant. So um, Augustine, who was a church father in the 300s, you know, almost 2,000 years ago, said, if you come across an error in Scripture, it's because of one of three reasons. Number one, a transmission error. We'll talk about that next week. Number two, an error in translation. Number three, an error in your own understanding. Uh, those are the three things to think about when you come across something that, you, that doesn't make sense in Scripture. Either you don't understand it, or a human being may have mistranslated something. Um, but inerrancy, as we're speaking about, it does relate to the original autographs. I want to close, we're almost out of time, by just reading uh, a statement from the, the, from the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. This is, uh, like I said, it was written in 1978. It was formulated by, 
about 200 evangelical leaders that came together and uh, wrote out this statement on scripture. People like R.C. Sproul, James Boyce, John MacArthur, uh, many of the leaders in evangelicalism at the time. Uh, I want to just read one section from that statement, which says, Holy Scripture, being God's own word, written by men, prepared and superintended by his spirit, is of infallible divine authority in all matters upon which it touches. It is to be believed as God's instruction in all that it affirms, obeyed as God's command in all that it requires, embraced as God's pledge in all that it promises. Uh, that is <clears throat> basically what we've covered today. Um, about inerrancy, authority, and sufficiency of Scripture. If you have more questions about what Malachi asked about, uh, what do we mean by inerrancy, this statement defines it very well. There's affirmations and denials that kind of say, this is what we mean, this is what we don't mean uh, about biblical inerrancy. So I would encourage you to just Google that. You can get a PDF. It's, uh, it's called the, uh, just look up Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, and that would, that would take you to that.